Alright, tonight we're going to continue our study in the Gospel according to John. Two weeks ago I taught how the divine decrees and the divine institutions, those related to how they related to the four unconditional covenants. But before returning to where we left off last week, let's use First John 1 John 1.9 as may or may not be necessary. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and study Your Word. Guide us now and direct us, for I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we're going to do some review and then pick up with new material on page 3. Alright, the doctrine of the four divine institutions, they are certainly under attack today. No doubt, they are, of course, volition, Mary's family, and nationalism. So let's see how they relate to the divine institutions and how each, of course, relates to the other. Uh, And we'll eventually look at the authority realms that should be supporting the divine institutions. All right, God early on established an organization chart. For example, we looked at how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are co-equal, co-infinite, and co-eternal. And uh, interestingly enough, at a point in time, the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit agreed to get under the authority of the Father for the very first time they ever got under anybody's authority. But as deity, they shared the triune nature of equality. However, in time, of course, Jesus and the Holy Spirit agreed uh, to get under the authority as the Father developed the plan and the Lord Jesus agreed to execute the plan. And that all can be found in what the Colonel theme calls the Eternal Life Conference. Isaiah 48, 16 and 17, Come near me and listen to this, said the Lord Jesus. From the first announcement I have not spoken in secret. At the time it happens I am here. And now the Sovereign Lord has sent me with His Spirit. This is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. Alright, so the principle of authority is clearly seen in the garden. The woman failed by refusing the authority of the Word and even distorting the Word. And then the authority of the husband was thus mentally seduced. Adam just chose to eat the fruit and thus refused the authority of the Word of God. So, rebellion against the authority of the Word, rebellion of the authority against the husband, and again, Adam just chose to eat. So we think about that and what would have happened had they not done that, but that's just what-if history. Let's look at what is history. So God has established authorities to permit the proper functioning of His plan in the devil's world. I think it's really best expressed in an expanded translation of 1 Peter 5.5, a book which we have studied. And uh, it says, uh, In the same way, you novices in Scripture, place yourselves under orders of your pastor-teacher. 
Yes, every believer must submit to his or her right pastor teacher and metabolize the teachings of your God-appointed instructor. It must be done with humility, for God places himself in battle array against the arrogant, unteachable types. In contrast, he keeps on providing grace benefits to those who desire the word of God. And so that's why we have scripture, why we have pastor teachers, and we should get under their authority. Now, and also 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 tells us that uh, if we do, we're going to be blessed, and if we don't, we're going to be cursed. Now let's go on. Let's take a look at the giant statue of gold, which we talked a little bit about last week. And uh, all of these are an expression of uh, and a prediction of what is going to happen that there will be a Chaldean Empire, the Medes and Persians, and then the Greco-Macedonian, and then the Roman, and then the revived Roman Empire. And that's the meaning of the vision. Alright, let's take a look at each of those empires very quickly and we'll get with new material on the next page. Alright, Daniel is told, and so he then tells, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. And uh, Daniel 2, 37 and 38, you, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. So he had a great empire and we see the Babylonian empire there. And you can see how vast it is. And he was over all of that and he took credit for everything that happened there. And uh, unfortunately, that was a problem. So God had to teach him a lesson. So the lesson begins with the vision. And we talked about that. Remember, this is all review. Then we had a Medo-Persian empire and a a Grecian empire. And verse 39 says, After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. And uh, certainly, uh, we have... uh, the Grecian Empire shown and I gave you a separate chart a colored chart that shows what happened after Alexander the Great died it was turned over to five kings you can see in the green Cassandra and the area that he took over which is basically Macedonia and uh, the city-states of Greece and then Lysimachus took over in the purple and uh, basically he got what we call Yugoslavia if you look at a map you'll see that Yugoslavia and the Slavs runs in that direction and it was called Dalmatia in the New Testament so uh, Paul went there during his his interim between the first and second imprisonment he said to have gone to Dalmatia so he crossed the Hellespont crossing over from Turkey over into Europe uh, where the blue there right there where it's blue and then purple on the other side so he turned left and went down to Achaia in other words he went left turned left (laughs) he went south instead of going north but in between he went north 
which makes sense because the scripture says he went to Dalmatia. Well, he hadn't been there. So he went up there to, to witness to the Slavs, and uh, as they were called. And then the big guy was Antigonus. He, he on the way over to, to uh, fight the Persians, uh, he stopped for a short time there, and he had that vast empire that extended on down into the Holy Land. Uh, and he's the one that will lose out. He will actually be killed. He was called, as I recall, Monophthalmos because he had one eye. And Mono one, Phthalmos, we get our word for our eye doctors. And uh, he was tall and he was impressive, uh, but he ended up being killed in a war with the Ptolemies. The yellow down there is the Ptolemies. They took over, that's Egypt. And then you have the Seleucids who were the really bad guys. And they're in the green. Uh, so you can see how there are two that have biblical significance. One is the Seleucus, and the other is the uh, Ptolemies. So the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, they fought over Israel uh, for some time, and we'll get more of that as we proceed on. But I thought that was an interesting map, and you guys have been so faithful to come to Bible study on Wednesday. And I thought it's... They're worth a colored map. So just feel like, you know, I'm really, I'm being so gracious to provide you colored map. Alright, now let's look in the Medo-Persian in Greece. After you know the king will rise inferior to yours. And then the Greco-Macedonian Empire. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. First, Alexander the Great, and then Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and lastly, Seleucids. You will recall our previous teachings regarding the war between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. Several of them, they would fight over who's going to control Israel. And finally, the Seleucids take control of Israel, and that is a problem. The victory ultimately will be decided by the Maccabean revolt, resulting in a quasi-Jewish nation. So we provided a map then of the Egyptian empire, that would be the Ptolemies, and we provided a map of the Seleucid empire, which would be, we'll call it Syria for lack of a better term. Uh, And then uh, you have as an example of what would happen when uh, Pompey will take over uh, for Rome, uh, Israel. So eventually that's in 60 BC, uh, but up in the 140s and 150s and so forth, you have the wars going on and particularly the Seleucids were very, very evil. Once they took over the Holy Land, uh, ultimately the big bad guy was Antiochus Epiphanes. And he, uh, of course, was the one who took Jewish babies and he built a, and put them in the, the fire inside the temple even. And he also uh, had a pig that he sacrificed in the temple. And he also put a, a statue, a false statue in the uh, uh, idol in the temple. So he was just totally a bad guy. And that's what caused the Maccabean Rebellion, Julius Maccabee and his boys, and they won the war. And uh, then they couldn't get along. 
They couldn't decide who was going to be the high priest, who, uh, you know, would be the, the, the ruler, political ruler. And so Pompey saw this happening when he was chasing Mithridates. He had an assignment from the Senate to chase him down and kill him because he was uh, uh, stealing from Rome by stopping their ships uh, in the Mediterranean. And so Rome said, well, you got to get him. So he went up there and Mithridates made his way up into southern Russia and Pompey decided... I'm not going to go up there because that's going to be too dangerous. But there is trouble down in Israel. They're, they can't decide anything. So I'm going to go down there and take care of them. So he had to do something. He had all those soldiers there. And he, you know, like a good military man, he wanted to fight. So he sent his boys down there. And they took over. So next we'll follow Roman rule under Pompey. And of course he made, as I like to say, Israel a jewel in the crown of Rome. All right, then let's talk about the Roman Empire. Daniel chapter 2, beginning with verse 40, and then we provided a map of that Roman Empire. Verse 40 says, Finally, now chapter 2 must be read, and you get to chapter 3, you want to jump over it and go to chapter 4 in Daniel. And if you'll read uh, Colonel's theme studied, excuse me, taught uh, Daniel chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, and then he stopped, and he didn't teach after that. And I have taught the whole book, and the book is on the internet. You can find it, of course, under Pastor Mary's study books. But uh, he makes, uh, he, he explains to you in his book why you need to stop, you need to jump over the chapter. And that's what we will see we will do. We will jump from chapter 2 to chapter 4. But uh, that's a nice little home study problem to look at. Alright, so the above three maps representing Ptolemy, Seleucid, and Maccabean empires give us a history montage of the Middle East after the death of Alexander. The three participated in several wars. Next will follow Rome, under which, of course, Pompeii, uh, conquered. Now let's again go to 240. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. This is Daniel talking now to Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was walking in his palace and he was looking out and seeing all the things that he did. He was eating up with the first thing God hates, proud, proud look. And God said, I'm going to teach you a lesson. And so he gave him this vision. He didn't know what it was. He asked Daniel. Daniel told him what it was. And that's what we're reading about. So he says, you're the head of gold. Then he says, finally there'll be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. Talking about Rome. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. And then there's the revived Roman Empire, ruling in the tribulation under the heading entitled the Divine Kingdom. Now what he, what he, in the vision, he sees a rock rolling down a hill and hits the big statue at the bottom of the, the feet and destroys it. That rolling stone is Jesus Christ. And that's, of course, at His second advent when He will destroy all the kingdoms of the world. And then uh, that would even include the revived Roman Empire. So we see the Roman Empire, and then we've talked about the revived Roman Empire before during the tribulation period. And we'll speak to it in great detail under our doctrine of dispensations. And we'll be starting the 
story on the, uh, we will be starting the lesson of the uh, three uh, eschatological uh, uh, dispensations. First, with the tribulation. And I would point out how important it is to, for believers to to take a look at the tribulation because most of the scriptures are in the book of the Revelation. And it is the only book in the Bible that promises the believer a blessing if they will study it. So, you know, uh, shouting from the housetop, so to speak. <laughs> and we're going to start it on Sunday. And uh, we will we will talk more about that later. But let's go ahead now with verse 41. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, in other words, a mixture of all the nations under the Roman Empire, all different kinds of people, they gathered them together and put them under one Roman uh, Empire, one Roman rulership. So it's partly of iron, partly of clay, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it. It will be a federation, much like uh, federalism. Even as you saw iron mixed with clay. That's what our Constitution was designed to do. Have federalism. States' rights. And all of a sudden, states' rights are important. See, when Trump came over, came over Trump took over, pardon me, uh, he was recognizing that we are a, a, a republic. And so we have limited rights at the federal head. Now, all of a sudden, the Democrats don't. See, the Democrats have always hated states' rights. They wanted to put all of us states underneath the federal head. And they fought and fought and fought. The whole Civil War has fought over that one issue. States' rights. Now, suddenly, when Trump gets in charge, he's not doing anything. He should come in and dominate us and put us under his thumb. And he should take care of this, he should take care of that, and we shouldn't have the governors doing anything so contrary to what previously had been uh, the thought that states' rights were evil. You know, and you can see that so it's so clear, and yet Americans can't think anymore, you know. They gave up thinking. And uh, that was evident, I think, in so much of what has happened recently, which is none of my business. But I'll tell you what is my business. Leave it with the Lord, and He's going to take care of things. So here we go. Verse 41, Just as you saw the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom would be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. That is to say, what just before the Lord returns at the second advent, He will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, that's Christ. Rolling down the hill and he strikes the feet of the statue. But not by human hands. No, no, no. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. All right, now under the heading, we're going to jump to chapter 4. God will show the king what will take place in the future. 
The dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. Alright, verse 5. I had a dream that made me afraid. I was lying in my bed. The images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wisdom, all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream. So he's, But they could not interpret it for me. And dropping down to verse 8, we got a little portion there that I eliminated. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and told him, I t- and I told him the dream. Now he is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The trees grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. That's the king of Nebuchadnezzar's empire. Under it the beasts of the fields found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in the branches from its Every creature was fed from it. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree, uh-oh, and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump, and here's the promise, it's going to be revived. But let the stump and its roots be bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. So he's going to suffer again from a terrible disease. He thinks he's an animal. Zoanthropy. Alright, zoanthropic problems in his mind. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. That would be seven years. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kings of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. See, that's what we have to keep in mind when we think about our world situation. All of the various thrones and all of the leaders, including our own, God put them all in place. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me what it means. For none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Alright, it's interpreted by Daniel. Then Daniel was greatly perplexed for a time and his thoughts terrified him. Uh, I don't mind. He was wondering, should I tell him or not about this, you know. So the king said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its meanings alarm you. Uh, Belshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. 
You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky. And your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. Alright, now the interpretation by Daniel. This is the interpretation. Verse 24. O king, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched in the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone He wishes. I'm reminded about, uh, as I've said before, Howard Hughes, how much this seems like Howard Hughes, you know, when he had his... In his heyday, and uh, had anything he wanted, but he became he became nuts, if you will. He let his hair grow long. He let his fingernails grow long. He was a germaphobe. He only wanted darkness. He had people bring him food, and he thought everybody was trying to poison him. Uh, and I think about him when I think about poor old Nebuchadnezzar. But here we go. Happy note. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Here we go. Get rid of that proud, arrogant look. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. So the vision is fulfilled and woe to the arrogant king. Uh-oh. So all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, here's the reason he this is happening to him. Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals and you will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. All right, now get ready for an Old Testament likeness of Howard Hughes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Now for the recovery. Let's see what happens. Why Nebuchadnezzar recovered and how God used the man to spread the word. Alright, Daniel 4, 36-37. At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. 
Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt the glory, the King of heaven, and glory, the King of heaven. Because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So there's a good lesson for us today in our national situation and in our international situation. We must know the supremacy of His providence without which not a single bird in the extended reaches of the Amazon forest have ever fallen off any limb. Wow. And not a single hair of any head turns gray or, as my case, falls away. Well, we must know the supremacy of His word. Isaiah fifty-five eleven, Hebrews one three through fourteen, NIV fifty-five eleven. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth; it shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I have sent it. Or the book of Hebrews, written by an anonymous writer just before the fall of Israel, sixty-eight A.D. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, what did He do? He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven. So He became as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is superior to theirs. For which of the angels did God ever say? This is for those who like to worship angels. You are my son today. I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father. and He will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds his servants, flames of fire. But what about the sun, he says? Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. So we must know the supremacy of His purity. He never sinned. He never had one millisecond of a bad attitude or a sinful lust. We must know the supremacy of His trustworthiness, that He always keeps His Word absolutely without fail. And the supremacy of His justice He will render all accounts settled in the universe, either on the cross or in hell. We must know the supremacy of His patience. He has endured you and me for decades. He has endured the world and He brings the sun out to shine on it. Can you imagine why the sun rose this morning on this wicked world so full of sinners? We must know the supremacy of Christ and His sovereign-like obedience. 
He kept every one of His Father's commands and embraced the cross with total willingness. He is meek and lowly and tender. He will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering flax. Isaiah chapter 42 verses 1 through 4. Here is my servant whom I behold, I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law the islands will put their hopes. We must know the supremacy of his wrath. One day it will explode on this world from heaven such that all who have rejected him will call for rocks to crush their brain lest they have to face the wrath of the Lamb. Revelation 6, 16 and 17 makes it clear. They call to the mountains and the rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? When some people see Christians being punished for their faith, and I hear someone ask, where is your supreme Christ? My answer is easy. He is in heaven, storing up almighty wrath and fury to pour out on all those who commit such sins. And you better get right with Him and repent, or you will all likewise perish. We know the supremacy of His grace, which gives life to spiritually dead rebels like us, awakens faith in hell-bound haters of God, and justifies the ungodly with His own righteousness. We must also know of His love. He died for us while we were yet sinners, and gives us, excuse me, and gives to the undeserving the ability of ever increasing joy in making much of Him. Good old Romans 5, 8 through 10. But God demonstrates His love for us uh, in this. While we were yet sinners, or still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? We must know that this is what we were made for. We are not made to do diddly things. We are made to know this King of kings and Lord of lords. This world is a little two-second slice, and then we are with Him forever. As Abraham Kuyper famously said, this is not a... Or there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! He rules with absolute supremacy. I always think of that mine when we were in Pensacola when Emily was just a little thing and she was in her mother's arms. 
and someone brought some balloons by and she said, mine. And, then, and Leslie said, she says that about everything she sees. <laughs> and on and on it went. <laughs> All right, he rules with absolute supremacy. And though it may not seem like it now, it is only a matter of time until he is revealed from heaven in flaming fire to give relief to those who trust him and righteous vengeance on those who don't. We must know the supremacy of Christ's authority. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. It is Christ who changes times and seasons, removes kings, and sets up kings, does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can stay his hand and say, What have you done? Now then, let's see what we can learn from John 4, 27 through 30. New International Version. Just then when his, excuse me, just then, his disciples returned. And I bet they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. And I certainly think the best way to teach these verses is to review the doctrine of witnessing. And of course, that's a wonderful place to stop. I know I'm I'm stopping a little early. But I don't think I'll get a protest. So (laughs) let's close her out with an invitation to anyone who may be without Christ, without hope, and without eternal life. Because right where you are, whatever you might be doing, you can tell the Father, I am believing on God the Son, and on the promise of the Word you will be saved. Just as the Scripture says, and as we have seen tonight in several Scriptures, certainly all have sinned just like old Nebuchadnezzar and come short of the glory of God, but the wages of sin and the wages of sin is certainly death. So uh, the resolution is, of course, Christ on the cross when He took care of all the sins of the world. For you see, God sent His Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. So God did indeed love the world and gave His only begotten Son that whosoever did believe, would believe, would receive eternal life. All because of what He did and not anything we did. And now I'm going to close. So when I give you a moment of silence... I want you to think about that. Think about it. And do it. Tell God the Father, I am believing on God the Son. Father, we're grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and to study Your Word. Now, of course, I would ask that God the Holy Spirit would take that which I have presented, make it real, in order that we might grow in your wonderful grace and become more like our Lord and Savior, even Jesus the Christ. Amen.